I'm Monsignor Matthew Midas at St. Angela Marisi Parish in Florissant, continuing talking about the sacraments. Last time we talked about the sacrament of baptism, the first of the so-called sacraments of initiation. But let's take a step back for a second, get the bigger picture. Confirmation, what we're going to talk about today, uh, is interesting among the sacraments because it's the one that even faithful Catholics have a hard time explaining. With every other sacrament, it's pretty obvious uh, the change that takes place after you receive it. You know, you bring a baby in who's just newly born for baptism. He comes in a pagan, and that's what they are, you know, I've been baptized. They walk out a Catholic, big change. You go into the confessional filled with sin, you come out forgiven. Everybody knows that. You walk into a, a church for your wedding, a single, you come out married, big change there. You go into the cathedral for ordination, you go into a layperson, you come out a priest. And that's pretty much true for all the sacraments. But you ask Catholics, how are you different after you've been confirmed? That's when people start scratching their heads and going, you know, I have a hard time explaining that one. And it is, it's a bit difficult. We understand that confirmation is not necessary for salvation, as baptism is, but it's very necessary for living as a faithful Catholic in this world because it's, it's the completion of baptism. Throughout the centuries, a lot of theologians have argued whether or not baptism and confirmation really are separate sacraments. They say they're pretty much part of the same thing. Well, the church has always said no. And we look at the two different scriptures from the Acts of the Apostles, how the apostles go to a certain spot and they ask the people, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, well, no, we were just baptized with the, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the other time St. Paul said, have you received the Holy Spirit? They said, well, no, you know, we just were baptized with the baptism of John. Well, there's a bit of a problem with those in that we would not recognize being baptized merely in the name of the Lord Jesus as valid baptism anyway, or certainly the baptism of John the Baptist was not valid sacramental baptism. It was pretty much just a, a sign of a, somebody who would like to be washed clean, but it had no power to wash a person clean. But the understanding is that, you know, the apostles laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit, and they began to prophesy. And uh, that was the big thing, that they received the Holy Spirit, in addition to being baptized. Usually the way we work it in the Catholic Church, uh, a child is baptized in infancy, uh, they receive confirmation sometime, at first communion, usually second grade, somewhere around there and then confirmation later on, usually seventh, eighth grade, maybe even high school. Uh, when I was confirmed, I was in first grade. In fact, it was a very big weekend for me. I made my first confession on Friday, May 6, 1960. My first communion, Saturday, May 7, 1960. Confirmation, Sunday, May 8, 1960. Very busy weekend. And uh, I remember in those days being told that when you're confirmed, you become a soldier of Christ. And that was a big thing for a little kid who was six years old as I was. I wanted to be a soldier of Christ. And back in those days, as part of the ritual of baptism, after the bishop confirmed you, he would actually hit you, slap you on the cheek. Now, I had the disadvantage of having a brother exactly one year older than I am who went through this the year previously. And I made the mistake of asking him how hard the bishop hit you. And of course, he said the bishop really clobbered you. He knocked a couple of teeth loose. So when the bishop came around to me, I'm cringing, you know. 
The reason why, and that is no longer part of the ceremony, and I think kind of sadly, because it was a symbolic gesture, but it symbolized a willingness to suffer with and for Christ. Let's face it, Jesus never promised his disciples anything but a cross in this world. He never promised us earthly glory of any kind or another. He did say you would have to suffer. Look what they did to me, he said. Well, they're going to do the same thing to you because no student is greater than his master. And there should be that willingness um, to endure all things for Christ. And that's what confirmation really is all about. The word confirmation as applied to this sacrament is fitting. Uh, to confirm something means to make it stronger. You know, you make a reservation at a hotel, they send you what? A confirmation number. Meaning that when you get to the desk and there's no room for you, well, you can pull out the paper and say, hey, I've got a confirmation here, you owe me a room. And indeed they do. Confirmation is the strengthening of the Holy Spirit that you receive first in baptism. Last time we talked about all the sacraments as being sources of grace. That is your definition, an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. And that grace is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the action whereby God takes him, puts himself in our bodies and makes us something greater, something nobler, something more wonderful. We understand that in confirmation, the big thing is the receiving of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very, very important. Again, not so much for salvations per se, but for living in this world, because it means we're able to operate on a supernatural level, a level greater than human. And, you know, that's basically what grace does for us. It lifts us up into a share of God's own existence, of God's own life. Of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the first four, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and counsel, we understand that these go to work on your intellect, raising your ability to, to know and understand things more up to the divine level, where you can have knowledge, but it's a supernatural knowledge. It's not just like knowing facts or data, but actually penetrating into the core of the mysteries of our faith. The last three, piety, fear of the Lord, and courage, are sometimes called fortitude, they go to work on your will, strengthening your power to choose, to choose rightly, and also to love. Because let's face it, God is love. It's not just that God does love, God is love. And there's nothing more divine than being able to love. There's a kind of love that is human. There's frankly a kind of love that is animal, pure selfishness. But the best kind of love is God's own love. And that's the kind of love that the different uh, fruits, gifts of the Holy Spirit empower us to do. Let's talk about the gifts briefly. The first gift we receive is the gift of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to understand the appropriate means toward an end. Like, for example, if someone wanted to participate in the Olympic, in the Olympic Games, the wise thing to do would be to train, you know, to exercise, to have a proper diet, uh, to learn from people who are experts in the sport. You're not going to make the Olympics by sitting on the couch and eating Fritos. It's just not going to happen. Uh, if anybody uses that as his training regimen, he's a fool, which is the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom means you understand that this is what the goal is, choosing the highest goal and knowing how to get there. To be able to look at the things of this world and see exactly what's going to help me towards salvation and what would be detrimental to my chances of salvation. Uh, 
and the people who are wise will choose the things that will be helpful towards salvation. The fool is the one who does otherwise, who does not prepare, who does not take the, the proper actions. Then we have the gifts of knowledge and understanding. These work together uh, because knowledge, we're not, not talking about being able to rattle off the catechism or to be able to quote you know, the scriptures at great length. If you don't understand them, then what's the point? I mean, you may know them, but the gifts of knowledge and understanding take our human faculty for knowing and understanding things and take it up to the divine level. What do I mean? Specifically what I mean is that it enables us to understand the deep things of God, to penetrate into the very core of these things, to where they start to make something that's a seeming contradiction like one God and three persons or the bread and wine actually become Jesus' body and blood, to be able to look at these things and not just say, well, okay, this, you know, the church teaches it, so I'll go along with it, but to actually say, yeah, this really makes sense. This really coheres. It cannot be otherwise. And to be able to explain in your own terminology to other people the mysteries that you understand. That's what these gifts do for you. All of a sudden, you're not so much on a human level because humanly, we can't understand these things. Absolutely impossible. And not that we ever will, at least in this world, and maybe even not in the next world either, come to understand these things fully. At least, you know, we, they, they start to make sense. Finally, you have the gift of counsel. And this goes along with what Jesus said to the apostles. He said, if you're on trial, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will speak through you. He'll give you the words to say. He'll give you a wisdom that no one can take exception to or contradict. The gift of counsel comes in very handy in this world in dealing with family members who are hard to get along with or anybody who's hard to get along with. It helps to have the gift of counsel, to know exactly what to say, to know exactly what to do. This is, comes in, like I say, really handy. You know, sometimes you'll find yourself going to a funeral parlor in a very difficult situation. Someone dies very young, like a child or a young parent or something, a very tragic loss. And a lot of people say, what do I do? What do I say? Well, sometimes people fall back on cliches and come out with, you know, things. But to rely on the gift of counsel, that the gift of the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, and it really does work. Talk to any priest who's ever been a preacher, it'll tell you, you know, how many times you go to the pulpit and you just say, Holy Spirit, you know, do the talking. And it's amazing how sometimes after Mass, people come up to you and say, gee, Father, what you said was so nice. And you'll say, what did I say? And then they'll come up with something. And you know you never said that. Uh, or if it, <laughs> it may have been something like it, maybe, but somehow the Holy Spirit made it right. That happens an awful lot. And it's not just for priests or people in the pulpit. It's for everybody. These are the gifts we've received in our confirmation. Sadly, most people don't rely on these things. They rely more on their education, their training, their background, you know, the life experience, whatever. Clichés, um, human things. Whereas we should be relying on the Holy Spirit because this is, you know, what confirmation really is all about. Like I say, the other three gifts of the Spirit go to work on your will, which is the power to choose, and the power to love. The first is the gift of piety. When we hear the gift piety, we think of you know, the old ladies saying their rosaries after mass, you know, or you know, kneeling in front of the statues. And certainly that is an expression of some kind of piety. But the real meaning of the word is fidelity, faithfulness. It means that even when it's difficult, 
even when you'd rather be someplace else or do some other thing or not be wherever you happen to be, that you stay there. You, you hold in. You hold fast. You don't give up because you know, of the commitments you've made, because of what God has given you, that you hold firm. And that's what piety really is all about. It's, it's another word for fidelity, for faithfulness. We have the gift of courage or fortitude. Fortis in Latin means strong, so fortitude means strength, strength of character. I think it's wonderful that you know most people, when you go through the difficult situations of life, you really don't know what to say, and you don't, and you know you may know what to say rather, but you don't have the courage to do it, or maybe you really have the gung ho courage to do something, but you don't know what to do. Through the gifts of counsel and of courage, God not only gives us the knowledge of what to do and what to say, but also the gumption to do it and to say it. That comes in awfully handy in life. And um, we have seen, especially in the witness of the martyrs, how courage really comes in, that people are able to put up with tremendous hardships and difficulties, tortures, and they'd be able to brave them beautifully because of the gift of fortitude. Um, fear is probably the most powerful weapon the evil one uses against us. I know C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters, which I recommend to you, it's a very interesting book, a very entertaining one, but also deeply insightful. It's, a, it's the you know, fictional uh, dialogue between a, a veteran devil named Screwtape and his apprentice devil, Wormwood. He's trying to give him tips on how to subvert and pervert the human race. And he says the number one weapon that we use against him is fear. Yeah, pretty much. Um, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about how fear is useless, how we should fear no one, because God is in charge. And remembering that, through the gift of fortitude, we stare down the enemy. We do not give him power over us. We do not submit to his temptations against us, especially as he tries to manipulate us through our fears. It makes all the sense in the world. The devil uses fear. The Holy Spirit uses courage. That's how the church operates best. Finally, we have the gift of the fear of the Lord. Now, the word fear is in there, and so it seems to be a contradiction of fortitude. But it really isn't fear at all. What it actually is is the most intense kind of love there is, where the thing that you fear the most is hurting the person that you love so dearly someone who has done some beautiful, marvelous, overwhelming things for you, and the thought of hurting such a person is just detestable, loathsome, uh, you just cannot bring yourself to do it. That's what fear of the Lord really is all about. I remember years ago, on my 10th birthday, uh, my grandparents used to live with us in a two-family flat in South St. Louis. And I remember for my, for my birth, 10th birthday, we had a... Uh, picnic in Tower Grove Park and my grandfather who was born in the old country and uh, wasn't all that familiar with American ways uh, decided he was going to give me a gift and so at the at the park I was getting my presents and uh, grandpa gave me a package all wrapped up and it felt kind of soft well every kid knows it feels like underwear I mean that's a heck of a thing to give to a kid on his birthday underwear with it so I Grandpa gave me underwear. Okay, you know. So I wasn't very much impressed by that. And so I just kind of put it off to the side and, you know, opened the other presents. 
And uh, then all of a sudden it started to rain, one of those summer rains where it rains fast and furious for about 10 minutes, it just drenches everything, but then is over. And so we pretty much piled everything into the car and we headed back home. And we got back to the house and my grandpa asked me how I liked the present. And I, of course, you know, I was a kid like underwear. I said, well, great grandpa, thank you very much. And then he said, you know, I had to look all over to find that. And I'm thinking, you know, underwear, a lot of people sell underwear. And then he says, I, I knew that's exactly what you wanted. And I'm thinking, Grandpa, what did you get me? He said, I brought you that ball glove, that Ken Boyer Deluxe Trapeze. Oh my goodness, I had one of one for years. And he went out and bought it for me. It was very expensive for the time. And I left it in the park in the rain. Oh, I felt that big, you know that someone had done that loving kind of thing for me and this is how I repaid his generosity? Oh my goodness. Well, that's what fear of the Lord is all about. That you understand exactly what God has done for you, that the cost that it took, the price he had to pay, and you sinned anyway. You broke his sacred heart. Oh my goodness. And that's what you fear. Uh, is it a kind of fear? I suppose it is. But what it really is is the most intense kind of love. It's what's behind the act of contrition, isn't it? Uh, oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended you. I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. Yeah, sure, any sane person would. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who art all good and worthy of all my love. In other words, the real dread of our sins is not because we might go to hell for them, but to know that God loved me so much and this is how I responded to him? Well, anyway, my brothers and sisters, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit go to work on our souls, the intellect and the will, strengthening our ability to know God and understand him and to serve him and love him in this world. Um, I keep coming back to the very simple point. There's a huge difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. To know about somebody is nice, but that's very human. Uh, to know about God, you can do that from studying the catechism, from reading the scriptures, and that's nice, as we should all do that. But only because we really are looking to know him, to have a deep personal knowledge of God, of how he operates, of his ways, and what he does for us. And these, this is what the gifts of the Holy Spirit empower us to do like nothing else. We talk about the ceremony of confirmation itself, and again, there's kind of a theological debate about this. What is the actual sign of confirmation? In baptism, it's flowing water. Whether a person is dunked in a river or baptized at the font, as most of us, I suppose, were, that's the sign of baptism. But what is the sign of confirmation? Well, there's actually two things. First of all, there's the laying on of hands. Some of the church fathers insisted this was all that the sign of confirmation was. And that's what happens when the bishop or the delegated priest confirms the people. He first begins by placing his hands over them and calling down on them the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, each one comes up and he puts the chrism on their forehead. Now, we talked about this with baptism how this is something we kind of borrow from paganism, uh, the different mystery religions that were very popular in Jesus' time and even before him, the cults of Mithras and Dionysus and Isis, um, that people, when they were initiated into these cults, uh, it was a three-year process, 
And at the end of the three years, they were asked, do you want to be a member of this cult? Three times. And if they said yes, the third time, they were actually literally branded like a cattle uh, on the forehead that wherever they went, people would know, you're a member of this cult. And there was no going back. It was a lifetime commitment. It was something that you used to identify yourself. Well, yeah, that's what confirmation is. We don't believe in mutilating people, but we do believe in that level of commitment. We commit ourselves, our lives, our, even our identity to Christ. And so that mark of chrism on the forehead is the reminder of, our, of a character that has changed. It's the symbol of a character meaning something that is indelible, something that's marked on our soul, like a tattoo, something that you really just can't take off. And the reason why, consistent with that, it's commonplace for the person who's being confirmed to take a new name. Um, how many of us remember our confirmation name? It's, it's, it's embarrassing how many Catholics don't. Uh, that's a, it's an important part of your identity. It's something you should be proud of. You took great pains to choose that name, at least you should have. You chose it for a purpose. Hope it wasn't just because it was the name of your rich uncle, you know. But there really was someone you wanted to pattern your life after, to take on a new identity. This is perfectly consistent with the scriptures. You know, when uh, Abram became uh, the father of a great nation, God renamed him Abraham, which means father of a great nation. Uh, Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter, the rock upon which Jesus would build the church. Saul became Paul. And even many of the religious orders still, when a person enters as a novice, they get a new name, a new identity, because they are, in many cases, especially a, a new creation. And so when you come up to the bishop, he calls you by your confirmation name and says, receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, be sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you answer, amen. He says, peace be with you and with your spirit. And then right after that, in the old days, you got pat on the cheek. It was just a pat on the cheek. But it was a symbolic gesture to make us realize that you are now a soldier of Christ. You are someone who is expected to go into battle, to do battle against the forces of evil, to be a force for good, for positive good in this world. And like I say, it's not really necessary for salvation like baptism would be, but doggone it, it really, you know, you really can't be a faithful Catholic in this world with supernatural knowledge, with supernatural faith, hope, and charity, the three theological virtues, unless you have been confirmed. Now, we understand that with this, we receive the seven gifts of the Spirit. Something happens within us. They produce, they change us, and they produce from within us what we call the twelve-fold fruits of the Holy Spirit. Very, very important. Think of it this way, there's the difference between a Christmas tree and an apple tree. A Christmas tree sits there in your living room and if, if something's going to come from it, you've got to put the presents underneath it. That is a gift you know, that, that is given to this tree. But an apple tree just produces fruit from within. And that's exactly what happens when we receive the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. They change us. They make us into different people. Um, and these fruits come out of us. There's 12 of them. Sometimes people list only nine. St. Paul, in, I believe in Galatians, talks about nine. Things like patience, kindness, chastity, mildness, longanimity, which means long-suffering, being able to put with a lot of stuff for a really long time. Folks, these are the traits that we really need to have. These are the ones that empower us to really be faithful people in the world. 
that these should be the characteristics by which we live. Many years ago, there was a, a free newspaper they used to hand out at different restaurants and street corners and different things. And it was infamous for its personal ads that people looking to link up with somebody would take out an ad and, you know, and people would call and get together, I suppose. And all, I, every so often I'd grab a copy. Of, I would, I'd never pay for it. it the thing was just a rag. But the, you look at the personals, they were very interesting. The people were always saying, I want to meet a six-foot-two, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, professional, whatever, you know. And what's always impressed me as being so shallow. This is a person who might be your life mate, and all you care about is what the person looks like or how much money they make. Um, shouldn't you be looking for people who are good and kind and mild and chaste? <laughs> well, and uh, you're just able to put up with a lot of stuff for a long time. It seems to me those are the characteristics that should be the hallmarks of who we are as Catholics, of being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's face it, Jesus just didn't come here to try to get some people to hang on, follow, or just be some kind of students. He came for disciples, people who would accept his discipline, people who would accept his ways, people who would really live in this world the way a Catholic is supposed to live, and that by doing this, the whole face of the world will be changed for the good. And this is what confirmation really is all about. How is a person different after he's been confirmed? Well, in the, Old, in the New Testament, it talks about how they started prophesying and preaching in tongues and things like that. Sadly, we've never seen that. I've never seen it anyway. I'm sure it probably happened somewhere. And this is a question that came up at the Council of Trent. Why do people not prophesy, speak in tongues when they are confirmed anymore? And the answer came back, if people had more faith, we'd see more of these supernatural events. Well, let's face it, we need more faith. And confirmation is a very big part of that.